right, let's go ahead and grab a spot. Uh, we will just jump in tonight. Uh, we are finishing up chapter 3 in First Peter, and we've been going through this for a handful of weeks. And uh, we'll finish, finish up this third chapter tonight. And uh, what I'm, what I'm going to do, this is a big, big chunk of scripture. And I'm going to uh, read the whole thing. And I, I mean, I wish I could spend six hours kind of going through, you probably don't, but I wish I could spend six hours going through all of it because there's so much in there, but we won't be able to get to every single piece. But I want to just kind of go through what's in there and then look at kind of the, the, major, the major points really that the, the anchor of the text that, that, Peter, that Peter gives to us, kind of the big, big idea. So let's, uh, let's look at this uh, long passage, Okay. He says this, this is starting in verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. If you've got a Bible, if you don't have one, you can have the one, by the way, that is um, in front of you. Hang on, let me set my timer on this so I can ignore it. Um. (laughs) Okay, there we go. Okay, so he says this, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life, he's quoting here from the Old Testament, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. This is still part of the quote, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, those that make you suffer, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now this is kind of the part that is very odd and strange. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said that this is one of the hardest text to understand in the Bible. So um, if you think that's weird, then it's okay. You're in good company. Um, I'll try to explain it a little bit, but there's a lot of different things it could mean, and it won't be the central point. But he says this, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to, to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So let me just go back to this part real quick, because we won't spend a lot of time on this, but I don't want to ignore it, and it's important, because God put it in the Bible, but... um, if you want to kind of study it more, then I'd encourage you to do that. But here, here's kind of, um, there's probably, I mean, there's, I think, like 300 different ways you could probably interpret it. But there's a few main ways, okay? And here's, here's one of them that I've kind of landed on as I've studied it. It says that Christ came and he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. So that's kind of weird. Like, what does it mean that Christ proclaimed to spirits in prison in the days of Noah? Anybody know what that means? Um, I mean, it's a little confusing, which is interesting because Peter writes later in his second letter that Paul, who's another apostle, he says, man, Paul writes a lot of things that are confusing. And I think, Peter, what? Come, that's a little pot calling the kettle black here because you're talking about some weird stuff. And here's what I think this means, just if you care. If you don't care and you're like, let's get on, then we'll be there in one minute. But here's what I think this means. I think what this means is that the spirit of Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit, preached through Noah to people 
And the Bible says um, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And if you remember Bible stories from a little kid, or if you saw Russell Crowe, then what happened is that uh, God says he's going to wipe out the, the earth with a flood because everybody's evil all the time. And Noah and his family are the only ones that aren't affected by that. The eight people, it says, are saved. And Noah tells people, hey, repent, turn from your sin, don't, don't do this. And I think what this is saying is that the Holy Spirit, so we could say Jesus, was preaching through Noah, calling these people to repent, and they did not. But Noah and his family, this small minority of Christians, were saved from God's wrath on the ark. And then he says, that's kind of like baptism, you're like, oh, I didn't know that Noah's Ark had anything to do with baptism. But he says it is. It's kind of, I mean, probably when Meg got baptized a couple weeks ago, no one was thinking, ah, it's just like Noah. That's just like Noah, right? No one was thinking that. I wasn't. But what he's saying is baptism is similar to Noah's Ark in that whole story in this sense, that the waters of God's judgment came with Noah and his family was saved because of God's grace. And in baptism, we symbolically experience the waters of God's judgment, but we're saved because of Jesus. Okay, so there's a lot that we could talk about on that. Like I said, there's just a ton here. I wish I could spend more time. But I think the main point is that just as Christians today, when Peter was writing this and today, are in a minority, but that doesn't mean they lose. God still saves them. And just because judgment comes doesn't mean that that wipes everybody out. God can save you in his grace. So I think that's kind of the main point here, okay? But let's look at the focus of what Peter is saying here. And this section, this whole section that we just read, is really Peter's closing arguments. This is his closing arguments. And I don't know if you've um, ever done jury duty. I had the privilege to do that one time. And... Or if you ever watch any of the kind of courtroom drama things, the closing arguments, that's kind of the, the big deal. That's when you lay it all on the table. That's when you're going for broke. That's the most, if you watch the TV shows, that's the impassioned pleas. And that's the ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I mean, that's when you're going all out, right? That's when you're just going for it, okay? Um, this is Peter's closing arguments. Here's what Peter said about a chapter and a half before that he's been talking about. This is what we've been talking about the last several weeks. And now he's kind of summarizing everything. And these are his closing arguments that we just read. But here was what he said that we looked at about a month ago. Here's what he said that everything's kind of been covered under. Okay. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So he was telling them, Christians, this is who you are. You belong to God. That, so there's a reason for that. There's a purpose for it. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners... It means you don't belong here. You're on a journey and exiles. You don't belong here. This isn't your ultimate home. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, a lot, I know. But this was kind of the overarching thing that Peter said. And then the last several weeks, we looked at how he applied that to what it means to be a citizen so he talks about government and what's our relationship with government. Then he talked about kind of if, um, if you're a slave and you have an unjust master, or really for us today, if you're employed and your boss is a jerk. And then he talked about husbands and he talked about wives and he kind of applied this big principle to, to all of those things. And then what we read a minute ago for tonight's text is the closing arguments to say, this is what this is what I have for you. This is, this is the charge, which is live your life to show how good God is. Okay? It's the simple idea. Live your life. Your life should be lived to show how good God is. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Those are people that don't know Jesus. Honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, some of them are going to say, man, you don't, you're evil they would see your good deeds and they'd glorify God. They would say, man, God is all, I, I look at your life and I see how good God is by your life. 
Okay, so that was, that's the big idea. That's the purpose that he gives to us. The purpose is he calls us out of darkness into light. That way we can proclaim his excellencies. So our lives, our words, everything is to show how good God is. That's the purpose. That's, that's what we're for. That's, that's what our life is supposed to be about. So that's, that's the thesis. And, and the text that we read for tonight is his closing arguments to kind of put it all together. Live your life to show how good God is. That is your purpose. Our lives are supposed to be a magnet to Jesus. They're supposed to, they should not repel people from Jesus. Not that kind of magnet, the other kind of magnet that draws people towards Jesus. That's what our life should be like. That's our purpose. And and some of us, I know, probably struggle with that. Maybe, maybe it's, man, I really love people, but I don't, I don't know how to live that kind of life. Maybe I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And I don't know where to get started. And that's difficult. And I mean, some of us can get hung up on this purpose that Peter gives to us. So how, how do we do that? Where do we start? What, I mean, how, how does life actually supposed to look in this way? Maybe you're not a Christian and you know Christians and they mess this up all the time. Their life doesn't draw you towards Jesus. Their life maybe makes you go, oh, I don't know about Jesus if, if he's associated with them. And I hope tonight, maybe as we look at some of these things, you would see how God wants you to be treated. You would see what it is that God wants for you. So as we answer that question, how can I live, how can I live this purpose that Peter gives to me? How, how can I live that? As we answer that question, I think there's five questions we have to ask ourselves to be able to live that way effectively that Peter gives to us in the verses we read. And, and here, here they are, okay? Here's the five questions. First one is this. How do I live? How do I live? See, what Peter says is that we are to be, and everything I'm going to be saying is in, the, in those uh, verses 8 through 22, I think it is. How do I live? Peter says we're supposed to be a community of love. He says that we should have sympathy, that we should have unity, that we should have tender hearts, that we should have a humble mind. That How do I live is the first, if we want our lives to be lives that compel people to Jesus, we have to ask the question, so how's my life? How do I live? Am I, am I a person that is a part of a community of love? where people look at not just me, but the community I'm a part of, and they go, man, there's some love going on there. That's, that's a loving place. That's a loving people. I, I want to be a part of that. And Peter says what that is defined by in many ways is grace. So he says, look, people are going to attack you, and they're going to revile you, so they're going to both use their actions, and they're going to use their words, and they're going to try to bring you down. And how do you respond to that? And Peter says, we don't, respond, we don't respond by attacking back. They speak evil against us. We don't speak evil back against them. They act against us. We don't act against them. We give grace because that's what God gave to us. Our lives are marked by grace. So it's not this kind of tit for tat. If you do this, I do this. If you wrong me, I wrong you. If you speak evil against me, I speak evil against you. That's not what our lives are defined by. We live a life that's marked by grace. I mean, this is what Jesus talks about when he says things like turning the other cheek. Very popular phrase, right? Where it's, how does my life actually get lived out in the day-to-day? Is it marked by grace? Or is it marked by equality? In the sense of, I want what I want. I deserve this. I deserve to get even. Or is it marked by grace? See, our lives have to be marked by grace and love. And, and, and Peter says that we should be zealous to do good. Zealous to do good. And to me, that's convicting. Because I think there's kind of three different kinds of, um, three different kinds of relationship we can have to good. There can be a, an avoidance of it. I don't really want to do good. There can be a willingness, which is, all right, I'll do it. And then there's zealousness. And Peter doesn't say, hey, do good. If the opportunity arises, let's, let's just man up and do it, okay? 
And he doesn't say, hey, watch, you know, try to avoid doing good. He says, be zealous for it. I was at a coffee shop last week working on this <laughs> and um, sitting at a table by myself. It's great. It's just a small table. It was not a big table, mind you, as I build my defense for this, what happened. Small table. And I had my backpack at the other chair, and I was typing and working on being zealous, doing good. And um, a lady walked up and said, hey, can I sit here? I look, I mean, I looked at her with a look that said, are you crazy? Didn't say those words, because I'm a pastor. And I said, "Um, sure, I guess. (laughs) That's my response. So that, in that moment, was a willingness to do good. I did not say, I am zealous for you to sit here. Please sit down, accompany me. Let us drink coffee to the glory of God. I I didn't say that. I was very reluctant to have her sit down. Um, And then thought about it and was like, man, that was really rude. What's what's my deal? I can't share. I mean, there there was no other, did I want her to sit on the floor? And I also thought, what if she happens to be really extroverted and chatty and says, hey, what do you do? And I would say, I'm unemployed. I'm looking for work, actually. I've got an interview. See you later. Bye. I, wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't want to talk with her, right? It's convicting. And so I apologized to her and said, I'm sorry. I, that was, I was rude to you. I was annoyed with you. And um, I said, I'm so annoyed at you because you were so inconsiderate. And you know, I'm not, not, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> I just said, I'm sorry. I, I was annoyed with you. And she said it was fine and everything. But I was convicted because I wasn't zealous to do good. I was willing to do good. I, I willingly let, let her sit there. I, I mean, it happened. But I was not zealous to do good, right? Are we zealous to do good? Is that what marks our life? I mean, if you're a Christian, then I know often we're willing to do good. If the right thing kind of presents itself and we'll do it and we'll, but a lot of times it's reluctant. How do we live? Is our life really marked by this overflow of grace where it's, man, God's given me all this grace. He's been so good to me. And so I'm zealous to do good to others. And here's, I mean, the good news is that, I mean, Jesus forgives us and we can own that. Like I can own that in the middle of a coffee shop and say, man, that was rude and that wasn't right. I'm not, I'm operating out of an annoyance. I'm not operating out of grace that God's given me that then flows out of me. I mean, we can own that. So it's okay, right? We don't, we don't have to just feel shame and, you know, sink our heads and walk out of here tonight. Um, But how do we live? Do we live with a, a zeal to do good? Not just a willingness, but a zeal to do good. Where, where does that hit you? And, and here's what happens. If we live like that, Peter says, people are going to ask you about it. People will ask you, what is going on? I mean, they're going to look at you and think you're weird. So let me, do people think you're weird? For good reasons, right? Like, just because you say yes doesn't mean you're doing what Peter says. Do people think you're, I mean, let me ask you it this way. Those that know that you're a Christian, if you're a Christian here tonight, why do people think you're weird as a Christian? Is it because of what you believe? Is it because they think you're weird because you're judgmental? Is it because they think you're weird because of the weird beliefs you have? Or do they think you're weird because of how gracious and zealous you are to do good? I mean, we should be, we should be living in such a way that's such an overflow of grace that people think we're weird. Man, that person just reviled you and attacked you, and you responded with blessing them? You're weird. If, I, if, I, if that would have happened to me, I would have done this. And Peter says that we should live in such a way that people actually think it's weird. So does your life, do we, do we live in such a way that demands an explanation? Do we live in such a way that people want to know, why, why would you do that? That's, that's how we know that our life is shaped by grace, is that we live in such a way that demands an explanation. It's not normal. It's not something that just everybody else lives the exact same way, particularly around when we suffer again, by other people. Even in the small things of someone taking your seat at a coffee shop, 
wasn't my well, kind of, it was my backpack seat. So when someone takes your backpack seat, I mean, zealous to do good would have been, hey, have the whole table. So how do we live? That's the first question we have to ask. If we want to, if we want our life to be following God's purpose, we want to go, man, how can my life be one that shows how good God is? How can I be a magnet to Jesus? First, we have to ask ourselves, how do I live? How's my life? Then second thing is this. It's not, it's not just how we live. See, our life is supposed to open a door. Our life is supposed to open a door. So think about literally a door. And I don't know if you, where you live. It probably depends if you have condo or apartments, that kind of thing. Um, or if you live in a house, people actually knock on your door. And oftentimes it's to sell something or have you sign a petition. And at least for me, I don't, I mean, I don't care what it is. I mean, it's usually just no. I mean, even if they say I'm giving away $3 million, nope. I mean, just shut the door. Um, Because they're just trying to talk with me. They're trying to get their words to open the door. But what if every single day I looked outside and there was someone shoveling my snow? Every single day I look out, someone's shoveling the snow or raking the leaves. And I look out. And then one day after, let's say, two months, that guy knocks on the door. I'm going to open the door. Well, probably even before that, I'm going to go out and go, hey, what are you doing? I mean, keep doing it, but what are you doing, <laughs> right? That's, that's what I'm going to do. Because our life is supposed to open the door in order to be able to speak. Sometimes we just go straight to our words, but our life is supposed to open the door to be able to speak. So the, so the next thing we ask is, how do I speak? See, life is supposed to be used to open up the door and then we're supposed to, to speak. And our, our words are supposed to be shaped by three different kinds of things, Peter says. The first is preparation. He says, be prepared to make a defense. When anybody asks you about the hope within you, be always prepared. So our words that we speak, how do I speak words about Jesus? It's supposed to be marked by preparation, which partially means that we study. I think that's a part of it. It means you actually uh, think about, I mean, this could be different books, um, whether that's Tim Keller or Ravi Zacharias or William Lane Craig or Lee Strobel. I mean, different, some of these different names maybe you've heard, people that spend their life authoring books and reasons of why we believe what we believe. I think that's a piece of it is, hey, be prepared to make a defense for what you believe. A piece of it is, yeah, are we studying? Are we thinking? Do we actually have a rationale? I mean, if you're not a Christian, maybe you, one of your objections to Christianity is kind of the, I mean, I just can't take something by blind faith. And I'm, I'm right there with you. And the Bible never calls us to have blind faith. You, let me, just tell you this, you should not take anything by blind faith. Nothing. That's ridiculous. We don't live any other part of our life that way. And the Bible doesn't call us to. God doesn't doesn't call us to that. He gives us reasons. And he says right here, you should have reasons. There should be a rationalistic thinking behind believing what you believe. If you just say, well, I just believe, well, then you're silly. I would like to sell you some things then if that's where you're at, right? But he says we should have a rationale. And so I think part of that is a study, but I think it's more than that. Because he says be prepared to give a reason for why you believe what you believe. I think that's getting at you personally. Not just reasons. He doesn't say be able to give the five reasons that we all know. He says why do you believe what you believe? And have you asked yourself that? If you're a Christian... I mean, if you're not a Christian, actually, it's really important to ask yourself, why do I believe what I believe? But if you are a Christian, why do you believe what you believe? Why? What's the reason? Is it just, I just grew up this way? I was just told this? It was because you had a mic and you told me it? I mean, why do you believe what you believe? That's a really important question. Do you know why you believe what you believe if you're a Christian or not? Again, I think it's an important question for anybody to ask. But particularly if you're a Christian, do you have reasons for why you believe what you believe? Personally. 
And if you don't, I would encourage you this week, tonight, talk with God. Really think about it. God, why do I, I believe in you, but why? And there's all sorts of good reasons. Maybe it's because your life has changed. Maybe it's because of um, you, you look at the Bible and you say, man, I just feel like this explains life better than anything else. Maybe it's because you look at the historical reliability of the resurrection. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It could be all sorts of things. But why do you believe what you believe? If somebody asks you just point blank. So you're a Christian. Why? Tell me why you believe. What would you say? For you personally, why? So our words should be marked by preparation, something we should actually be prepared to answer. Secondly, Peter says they should be marked by gentleness, which means this. It means that when we talk with somebody, sometimes we can speak the truth as a jerk, right? And you can talk with somebody about Jesus and not be like Jesus at all. You can talk with someone about Jesus and be like, how could you be so stupid that you believe those things? You are so dumb. Jesus is so smart and you are so stupid. It's so clear to me. I'm appalled that you would think that way. I mean, that's not gentleness, right? I mean, the guys on the side of the road with the signs saying, God hates you. Not very gentle, I don't think, even if true. That he says, we should have a gentleness about us when we talk with others. And a lot of this comes back to what's your goal? See, if our goal in the middle of a conversation with someone is, I want to beat them. And I don't mean like actually punch them. I mean, I want, to, I, want, I want to win. They've got an argument. I've got an argument. I want to win. We're not going to be gentle. If our goal is not necessarily to beat them, but just to feel good about ourselves, like, man, I, whew, I answered those questions so good. My reason for the hope within me is awesome. Then, again, it's not going to be gentle because it's about us. It's about trying to earn and achieve a notch on our belt or something. But if our goal is, I really love this person and want them to see how good God is, then that creates a spirit of gentleness, right? I mean, when your goal with someone is, I really want them to see how good God is, there's gentleness there, right? So Peter says our words should be marked by gentleness. I remember this guy that asked me recently, we were talking, and he found out as a pastor and he didn't find out. I told him I was a pastor. It wasn't, he wasn't like a detective. I, mean, I told him I was a pastor. We were talking, and he said, man, I'd be interested to get together and talk about kind of what you believe, but, but can, I, can I ask you any question and you won't be offended? And I said, yeah, of course, but it was sad to me that he even asked that question because people are so used to, hey, if I ask you something that you don't like, that you don't agree with, are you going to jump on me and show me how dumb I am and Dumb I am? Is that what's going to happen? I mean, it's sad that that's kind of the, the belief people have. I was even talking with a guy today that was saying something similar and said he was about to share his opinion on how organized religion is dumb. And, and he said, hey, I don't want to offend you. Like as if the, when he says that, I was going to get up and be like, what? Organized religion's dumb? I mean, it's sad that we, people think if I disagree with you, there isn't going to be gentleness. And Peter says, man, don't, don't do that. When you talk with people, have gentleness. And our words should be marked by respect. And that, this, to me, is huge. Respect means that when we talk with someone, that we respect them enough to really understand where they're coming from. To actually get inside of their world and to understand their point of view, even if we disagree with it. We can talk. See, here's why I hate the idea of tolerance, and which is a very popular buzzword in our culture and community. Because tolerance just means you actually have to agree with me. I mean, that's not what the actual definition of the word means, but that's how it's used. Tolerance is you have to agree with me. But that's, I want respect, and I want to give respect. I want to be able to sit down with someone and go, I disagree with you, but I can still respect you. I can still understand your point of view. I can still, li- I can still appreciate your point of view. I mean, if you actually respect someone, you can listen to them and understand them to a degree that you can actually, while still disagreeing, still holding your convictions, appreciate what they're saying. See, if you listen to someone long enough and really understand them, you'll appreciate what they're saying. Even if you disagree, 
even if you boldly have absolute different convictions, if you, you can't really understand someone without going, yeah, you know what? I appreciate. I appreciate where you're coming from. That makes sense to me now. I disagree with you still, but it makes sense to me. That's respect. Respect is asking people questions and really listening. This is why often I'll say to people, hey, ask people before you get so passionate about sharing your faith, ask people to share with you their faith, which is just questions. Just, hey, tell me what you believe. Tell me how you grew up. Tell me what your thoughts are. Tell me what your, doesn't mean you get rid of your convictions. I'm not saying that at all, but it's just respect. That, man, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually understand where you're coming from. I'm going to actually listen to your point of view and, and hear what you have to say. Respect means that we, that we honor the other person by, by not kind of dehumanizing them, but we say things like, man, here's, here's what this means to me, instead of just an argumentative posture, or we say things like, hey, have you ever considered, have you ever considered this? Instead of just saying, this is it, the end. Even if you believe that, I'm just talking about how, how can we be respectful to somebody? How can we be respectful? Are our words marked by respect? So how do I live? How do I speak? But a big, biggest obstacle to this, what do you think? What do you think is the biggest obstacle to living our life in such a way where we want to show how good God is We're zealous to do good. We want to speak words about Jesus with respect and gentleness and preparation. The biggest obstacle to this. It's not our time. Sometimes people think, man, I'm just too busy to live my life like that. It's not our money. I don't have money to do that. It's not our knowledge. I'm not smart enough. I'm not skilled enough. It's none of those things. The biggest obstacle, Peter says, it's how we view other people. And that's what we have to ask ourselves. How do I view others? Peter says, it's fear. Peter says, do not be afraid nor be troubled, but always be prepared to give an answer, a reason for the hope that's within you. See, how do you view others? This is the third question you have to ask yourself. How do I view other people? Am I afraid? Am I afraid of what they'll think of me? If I, if I talk about Jesus with people, if I live my life in such a way to show how good God is, and then it actually works and they ask me about him, am I afraid what they're going to think of me, their opinion of me? Am I afraid about my reputation, what they will say to me about to others? Pfft, did you know that so-and-so thinks this? They're a lunatic. Am I afraid about what they think about me, my reputation, what they'll do, maybe... Maybe there's actual real harmful consequences that might come. Maybe they won't be your friend anymore. Maybe you'll get fired. Maybe you'll, am I afraid? Am I afraid about my comfort level? Do I really want to be around people that uh, don't believe what I believe? That's uncomfortable, right? I mean, it's un- I mean let's just be honest. I mean, it's uncomfortable to be around people that don't believe what you believe. That's why people form cliques and form groups and form, I mean, that's why there's racism. That's one of the reasons why there's racism. It's what, I mean, all sorts of things, right? It's comfortable to be around people that are like you. So we can be afraid of the uncomfort of a situation. We can be afraid of failure, of, oh man, I just totally blew it. We can be afraid of all sorts of things. Fear is the number one thing that keeps us from living the kind of life and speaking the kind of words that Peter calls us to. Fear. We have all sorts of other reasons and other excuses that we put on top of it, but if we dig underneath those, what, what's there? It's, it's fear. I'm afraid. Maybe you're afraid of sin cooties getting on you. You know? You don't want to be around other people that are sinners because it might rub off on you. Ugh. Get sin cooties. Maybe you don't say it like that. Maybe you do, but maybe but you feel like that. Oh, if I'm around people that are different from me, that do different things than I do, that I'll catch it. It's like Ebola. Fear. And here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the fear of man, the fear of man is a snare, which means it's a trap. 
the fear of man, so afraid of what other people think or afraid of the uncomfortability or afraid of all those things I just mentioned, the fear of man is a snare, it's a trap, which means that we get stuck. I mean, a trap means you're kept from doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're kept from enjoying what you're supposed to enjoy, from living the way you're supposed to live, from the purpose you're supposed to have, and, and fear of other people keeps us trapped. It keeps us trapped in our bubbles of security and safety and seclusion. It keeps us trapped in our own little uh, circles of people that are like us. It keeps us quiet. Our mouths are trapped. Our words are trapped. It keeps us dishonest. People ask you, what are you doing tonight? Oh, just hanging out probably. And I've found that oftentimes if we're just honest, it opens up a lot of doors. So why do you live like that? Uh, just because. Instead of actually giving real reasons. Remember one time somebody asked me, I think I was getting my hair cut or something, and they said, so what are you doing this weekend? I was like, oh, I'm you know, going to a wedding and going to hang out with my family and go to church. And they're like, oh, that sounds like a very family-friendly weekend. And I mean, I kind of, he was right, but I kind of felt defensive because he was saying that as a negative thing, you know? I was like, yeah, but we're going to all be on acid during it. It's going to be crazy. You know, I felt, I kind of felt like the need to defend myself. And so sometimes when we're afraid of what other people think of us, it, may, it means the next time someone asks that, we just say, oh, you know, I'm just hanging out with friends. Fear keeps us trapped. It keeps our mouths trapped. It keeps us dishonest. It keeps us... And here's, here's what I was thinking about when I was thinking about being trapped and the fear of man being a snare is that there's kind of two kinds of traps. Um, one kind of trap is what you use to catch an animal to kill it and eat it. Okay? And what happens when an animal's in that trap? They don't like it. So big old clamp, let's say, on a bear or something, and it's making bear whining noises. I was going to try and do it, but I don't, I don't want that recorded. Um, so it makes noises that a bear would make in a trap because it doesn't want to be in there, right? And maybe some of you feel like that. You know you have fear of what other people think of you and you want to get out. You don't like it. It's like, how do I get out of this? I feel trapped. I don't like it. But there's another kind of trap. There's a hamster trap. You know what a hamster trap is? Just a cage. And the ha- what's the hamster do in the cage? Runs on his wheel, just drinking his little water bottle thingy, right? <laughs> See if you would have heard the bear noise. <clears throat> he's just chilling, right? He's, he, he thinks life is going well, but he's trapped. And sometimes that might be where your fear has led you. Life is great for you. Life's awesome. It's comfortable. It's safe. It's, you've got people around you you like. It's great. And you don't even know that you're trapped. But you dig underneath, and it's fear that has trapped you. Fear that's trapped you from living the purpose that God has for you. And you're a little hamster. Running on your wheel, living your life, thinking it's a blast. So the fear of man is a trap. Fear of man's a trap. So how do we get out of that trap? How do we get out? If, if how we live and how we speak are the big parts of how it is that we live our life to show how good God is, but fear keeps us from doing that, what destroys the fear? How do we overcome the fear that keeps us from living our purpose? We have to ask yourself, how do I view God? How do I view God? That's where it starts. It starts with our view of God. That's what Peter says. He says, do not be afraid, but in your heart, honor, the, honor, honor Christ. Regard Christ, the Lord, as holy. See, how do you view God truthfully? Just, just pause for a minute. How do you view God? in reality, in your heart. Not just what you would confess, not just the words that we sing, not just what you would write down on a piece of paper, not just what you check on a survey box. How do you view 
God? How do you view Jesus? In your heart, do you regard, in your heart, and this is, Peter says this, he's talking about the heart. He says, in your heart. This is a heart level, heart sinking thing. It's something that's in the soul. It's not just kind of this, hey, so what do you believe? Huh? He's saying, what's in the soul, in your heart? The only thing that's ever going to overcome fear of other people is in your heart. Do you regard Christ the Lord as holy? Which is the same word that Jesus uses when he teaches us how to pray to say, hallowed be thy name. So it's this posture that's not just saying, oh yeah, I think God's holy, as in, oh, I think he's perfect or something. It's this heart posture that says, when I look at God, my heart is in awe of Jesus. Is that what happens in your heart? It's the only way to overcome fear of other people. And this is what Peter kind of fills up the text with when he says things, when he quotes from the Old Testament. We read all of this, but I'll repeat some of it. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, part of what it means to, in our heart, regard Christ the Lord as hallowed is that we see all this stuff about him. That we see, man, he's on my side. That we see he's, he's my judge. All these things, again, that Peter has already mentioned. If you've been here, we've looked at the last several weeks that I, I see him and I'm in awe of him. I'm in awe of him because he's on my side and he's for me if you're a Christian. I'm in awe of him because he's the judge and so I don't have to fight for my own rights. I'm in awe of him because it says he will bless me. It says he'll bless me when I, when I do good even to those that persecute me and are against me. I'm in awe of him because he's for me. I'm in awe of him because like Noah, Noah looked like a fool, right? He just looked like a fool. He was out there telling people it's going to flood and people think he's just building a big old boat. I mean, people thought he was a dummy, right? And, And then God vindicated him. I mean, to be in awe of Christ as Lord is to say, man, that's who you are. And those things, what, if you believe those things, what happens? It starts to crowd out the fear of others, right? That's why Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. Not fear as in we're terrified of God, but this awe. That if, if our hearts are afraid of what other people think, And so again, we live our life seclusion and safety and comfort and all this stuff. If we're afraid of of other people, the only way to change that is our view of God. Are we in awe of him as Lord? Are we in awe of God as Lord? Which, Which means all of those things. We see who he is, that he is the highest treasure. He's the one that our heart is most filled in love with. And this, this is the key. I mean, this, if, if you look at your life even and you go, man, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a short amount of time and you go, I still struggle with kind of living in this kind of way or talking with people about Jesus. This is the, it's what's in your heart. Do you have anything that overtakes the fear of other people? Is your awe of God big? What's really in your heart? Again, Heart. I'm, I'm talking heart, okay? I'm not asking you what you would say to me just in a test. Heart. That's why Peter says, in your heart, regard Christ this way. What's happening in your heart? So how does our heart get affected? How does our heart get affected like that? If our view of other people is what often causes us to be afraid and to be silent, and our view of God is the only thing that overcomes that, how does that actually stir up in our heart? And this is the last thing. How do I view myself? How do I view myself? See, the only way your heart will be affected in this kind of way where you regard Christ as Lord, where he's the most holy to you, he's the most precious to you, he's the one you love the most, he's, it crowds out the fear of everybody else. The only way that happens, the only way is 
if you're able to answer the question, how do I view myself, and you see the, the, the picture that Peter paints, the picture that Peter paints, say that five times fast. And here's what Peter says. He says that we have a great need. Here's what he says in verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. What that means is that we're not okay before God. Before God, in God's sight, in God's view, we are unrighteous. That's what God says. And when God looks at us, we're unrighteous. It means we're not okay before God. And a lot of times people think, I'm a good person. I'm good. I do good things. And you're probably right. Maybe you're wrong, but you, you might be a very good person. But that's not what judges if you're righteous or unrighteous. Your morality... Our morality is not what judges if in God's sight we're okay or not. Because what about this? If I told you, hey, you know, my wife, I, uh, I pay all the bills in the house. And I make sure she has everything she needs. And I don't cheat on her. And um, anything she ever asks for, I give to her. And so I'm a, I'm a good husband, right? I do a bunch of good husband things. But I ignore her. I don't really talk with her. I don't really have a relationship with her. I just kind of ignore her. You wouldn't think I was a good husband, right? I hope. I mean, no one would go, that's so romantic. That's, I'm, man, you're such, I'm glad that you're a faithful, good, moral husband that completely ignores your wife. But that's how we look at it with God. We think, man, I, I can live a great life, so why does God think I'm unrighteous? But if you're living your life but ignoring Jesus, God looks at that and says, unrighteous. And what would you think as a husband in that case if then you found out my wife left me? You'd probably say, well, he kind of got what he deserved. It's the same thing. It's what hell is. Hell is just getting what we already have been doing living our life apart from God, separate from God, and it's just that forever. So we have to see, are, do you view yourself as someone in deep need of grace? That without Jesus, I'm unrighteous? What it says here is that Jesus died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So we have to see our great need. I'm someone that God views as unrighteous, and yet our great gift which is that Jesus paid the penalty that we should pay. That's what it says, that Jesus died. The righteous one, he's righteous for the unrighteous. That's us, everybody. And sometimes people say things like, man, I'm not worthy of that. Talk with a lot of people, and a lot of people have that feeling, like, oh, I'm not worthy of that. You're right, none of us are. None of us are worthy of that. And if we have an idea that, well, I need to be worthy of that, then we try to make up for it. And it's kind of like we're trying to mess with the perfect thing God already did. Trying to add to something perfect. It says Jesus did it once. It's already been done, so you don't have to pay for it now. You are unworthy. You're unrighteous. But the great gift is that Jesus died in your place as your substitute for you to take the punishment that we deserve. So how do I view myself? Do I view myself as someone with a great need of grace and someone that has received a great gift? And here's what the ultimate gift is. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Now that's huge. Because here's what this means. It means that the good news is not just that Jesus forgives your sins. It's not just that he makes you clean. It's not just that he gives you his record of righteousness, though he does that. 
It's not just that he sets you free from the powers of Satan and slavery and death. It's it's not just that you get heaven forever. It's not just that you get a community of people to be a part of. The The great thing that Jesus does is it says he died to bring us to God. Is that, is that good news to you? That Jesus brings you to God? And the way I like to think about this, because sometimes when people hear that, they go, well, what's so great about that? I mean, if I told you right now, guess what? I'm going to bring you to Bob. You'd go, okay. Who's Bob? And if Bob is cool, then you might be happy. But if Bob is dumb, you don't care. So it really depends on who is God. See, if the great thing that Jesus does is, I'm going to bring you to God. If that's the great thing that he says he's going to do, who's God? Why, Why is that such a big deal? And if you know God, it is a big deal. Because if you think about a wedding, what happens in a wedding? A bride is brought by her father down the aisle to the husband. And both of the the husband and the wife are thinking, I'm being brought to this person and it is great. Why? Because they adore the other person. They know the other person. They love the other person. They see how good the other person is. And none of them feel gypped. They don't go, well, what are you going to give me? What do I get? Right? In a wedding, people, what do they pledge to one another? They don't say, I will give you my money. I will make you happy. They pledge themselves. I give you me. And that's what Peter says happens here, that Jesus walks us down the aisle and brings us to God. And because God is good, because he's gracious, because he's the best person in the universe, that that's really good news. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what Jesus brought us. 